Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and we're actually, we started last week, so we're picking up in verses 2 and 3. We introduced those two verses, but didn't finish them, stopped halfway through the section when we ran out of time, so. Well, let's open with a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the guidance it gives us. Uh, we just pray as we go through this book that we'll, we'll learn and, and uh, about all these different situations that the Corinthians faced and about the problems they had and, and learn your, uh, from your word what, what is correct and, and how we should respond to these things. We just pray you'll bless our time now as we study together. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, to get our context, let's read uh, verses 1 through 11, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 1 through 11. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life. Don, can you do verse 4 for us? You want to pass? Oh, oh. No. Okay. Then, no, that's if then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? The believer goes to law with, but brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither they sexually immoral immoral or idolaters or adulterers or men who practice homosexuality. Hmm. Verse 10. Verse 10. Okay, thank you. Nor thieves, not, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Okay, last week we, we finished up uh, chapter 5. This is where Paul is dealing with the problem that they've got uh, a man committing incest in the church and they have not done anything to discipline him. They've just accepted him just the way they are and, and Paul basically says, no, you have to uh, excommunicate him and, and the purpose is that he would... Um, repent and be restored to fellowship. And this wasn't like a permanent banning uh, of a person. And then we, we went through and he talked about how do we deal with people in the world? You know, he said, you, you, you take this uh, person from the church, you put them out, you don't do anything with them, but what about the world? And so we talked about that for a while, for just unbelievers, how we interact with them. Um, and then finally, what we looked at last week, you know, Paul says, what do I have to do with judging outsiders, those who are unbelievers? He says, God will judge them. That's not my job. I don't have the authority outside the church. Um, and then he finishes with a quotation that we saw uh, over and over again in Deuteronomy. 
He says, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. So when in discipline in a church, there's, there's stages of discipline uh, that you can find in the book of Matthew. But when you get to the final stage, the person is still unrepentant, even when they've been, the issue's been brought before the whole church, it's excommunication. Put them out of the church, and again, hopefully, the goal is that they will respond to that. So they were not judging uh, this person in the church who should have been judged. Now, chapter 6, it, it looks like a whole different subject, but it's still about judging. So you've got, in this case, now you've got two Christians in the church, and they've got a dispute between them, and the church ought to be able to judge that and make a decision for them. But we saw that they, they go outside, they go to the secular courts, they go before unbelievers for judgment. And so last week we, we started verses 2 and 3. And I'll say, or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So last week we looked at this idea that we're, as believers, we are in Christ. And as Christ returns to rule over the world at the second advent, we will rule with him in Christ. And we saw passages where it talks about um, believers actually being given the position of judging uh, in that millennial kingdom. Uh, specifically, the, the 12 disciples will be, Christ says, you'll be judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So that was a very specific case. But in Christ, we're there, and we will also be given positions of rulership with Christ as he reigns over the world. Um, and then also that uh, examples of Jesus as Christ judging angels, judging the angels who fell in, in Galatians, or excuse me, Genesis chapter 6, you know, God has judged them, Satan will be judged by Christ. We share in that judgment. So that's kind of the background, and then he makes the application in, in verses 2 and 3, where, okay, so we're, we're going to co-reign with Christ, we're going to judge the world, we're going to judge angels. So what about now, in, this, in our current age? Um, the obvious application is, yeah, we ought to be able to judge issues today, too. Um, you know, verse 2, you know, if believers are judging the world, can't they judge the smallest matters now? Well, of course they can. You know, that's the application. Of course they can. Um, now, he also mentions um, the smallest law courts. So, that kind of implies that the disputes between the believers are not major issues. They're these little picky things. You know, and it's, um, it's something that, you know, they shouldn't have blown up. They're trivial matters. They shouldn't have to go to a secular court to get them, uh, get those judged. Um, and again, verse 3, you know, if we're judging angels in the future, can we judge things in, in the church now? Of course, should be able to. So we've, we've got in the, you know, in the body of Christ, we've got people who are regenerated. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit. 
we should know the word of God, we ought to be able to judge minor conflicts in the church. And if we can't do it, going outside the church to, a, to unbelievers is not an improvement. Yes, this is this is a matter of settling disputes between two people. Yes, the judging of others means uh, condemning others. When you look at a uh, another believer, you condemn their lifestyle. You know, one one of the things is we're we are all basically accountable to God, mm -hmm. not to each other. And I think I made the illustration before, you know, in a family of four boys, you know, we, you know, we might tell each other, straighten up, or you shouldn't do that, but we were not accountable to each other. We were accountable to Dad, you know. Um, and so that's kind of the, the issue that, you know, you kind of look at it the same way. We're a family, and we're all responsible to our father, not to each other. But we ought to be telling each other and teaching each other and warning each other about the things we do or don't do so that we can all please our Father. So that kind of sums up what, what Paul was getting at in verses 2 and 3, which brings us to verse 4. Now, I'm going to read it from New American Standard, and yours is probably different. If then you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? This is, all the commentaries say, this is a very difficult verse to translate and to understand what Paul is saying here. Um, and so we have different, the, the translation translations they have to kind of figure out, well, what's Paul getting at in order to put the words in the right order to say that? And there's, there's two main ways of looking at this verse, and so we'll look at both of those. Um, but let's to start with, okay, if then you have law courts dealing with matters of this life. Um, New American Standard, which I'm reading, says law courts. Well, the word is just judging a, or making a decision about an issue. It actually doesn't, it's not quite this formal as New American Standards says. So if you have to make decisions or judgments about matters in this life, is what it's talking about. Who do you appoint as judges? Which means who do you go to to make this judgment? Okay, so you have a dispute in this life, not in the future, we're not talking about the future millennium, we're talking about here and now. If you've got a dispute with another believer, who do you go to to help settle that dispute? Okay. So, then you get to the last part, and that's where the, that's where the problem comes in. Um, the verbs in Greek have different endings depending on um, the intent of the verb. And here we've got the case of, is this an imperative? Is Paul giving a command? Um, and that's this last, the last phrase. Um, uh, who do you appoint as judges who are of no account to the church? This appointing, or who do you go to? Is that a command to go to and appoint a certain person to judge? Or is it 
just an indicative, like a rhetorical question. Who do you appoint as your judge? Who do you go to as, as judge? So when you look at, look at it as an imperative, and Paul is telling them to appoint somebody, then you're looking at it as being a sarcastic statement here. He's saying, go find the person in the church who is absolutely the least competent to judge this thing. That, and, and so that's one way of looking at the, of those who are of no account in the church. You take, you take the person who is least likely in the church to be able to judge correctly, appoint them to be a judge, because they'll do better than the unbeliever. So there's the sarcasm. He says, at least competent of you ought to be able to do better than the unbelieving court. And so that's one way of looking at this verse. The other one is to look at it as being a rhetorical question. Um, and in this case, those who are of no account to the church, he's referring to those who are outside the church, who have no status in the church. Basically, he's talking about unbelievers. And, and, and so it's a question. You know, uh, you've got a dis, uh, dispute in, between believers on, you know, in this present time. Do you really go to outsiders? Do you really go to unbelievers to have it decided? So those are the two ways of looking at this verse. Um, and you can kind of actually pick either one and you, you end up with the same general idea. You don't do it. <laughs> Those in the church ought to be able to make the judgment. You shouldn't have to go outside. Now, in the next two verses, 5 and 6, Paul really emphasizes uh, believers ought to have wisdom to be able to make the decision within the body of Christ. So looking at 5 and 6, I say this to your shame. Is it so that there's not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren, but brother goes to law with brother and that before unbelievers. He speaks this to their shame. He says, you ought to be ashamed of yourselves for this behavior. He says, it really is a, a stupid violation of who they are in Christ and, and what God's plan is for them. Um, and so he talks about, I mean, here he's saying that you ought to be ashamed. Let's book, look back in chapter 4. Does someone like to read verse 14? I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Okay, so in chapter 4 he says, I'm, I'm not trying to make you ashamed. And that's where they had been kind of rejecting his authority and his teaching. You know, they were thinking too highly of themselves. He's writing to correct them. Okay, just, you need to submit to God's word uh, and, and God's teaching. Now here, this failure is so bad, and it, it's basically humiliating to, to Christ. He says, you ought to be ashamed here. Um, this is a much worse uh, sin that they're committing. Um, so Paul is speaking to their shame. We have that also uh, in chapter 15. So in 1 Corinthians, let's turn to chapter 15. Verse 
Someone like to read verses 31 through 34. 1 Corinthians 15, 31 through 34. Okay, so this chapter is about the resurrection. Um, we have earlier in the chapter, he's talking about those who say there is no resurrection. They have false teachers. And what he's, in our, our verses here, 31 through 34, he's saying, you've been following and listening to these false teachers who say there is no resurrection. There is no future hope. And that's why he says, well, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. There's no hope for the future. Let's practice hedonism. Um, and so that's why he's, uh, he, you know, he's talking about this false teaching, and then uh, verse 33, bad company corrupts good morals. Well, that's a, a Greek saying. You say, okay, you're keeping company with false teachers, and they're going to mess you up. <laughs> they have already. He says, I say this to your shame. Those people have no knowledge of God. They have no knowledge of the resurrection. And you're following them. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. So there's a, a case where they're denying one of the essential, fundamental beliefs of the Christian faith. They're being led astray. And that's where discipleship is key. Mm -hmm. You're discipling them so they know that you know, that's not what they do. You disciple and teach, yeah. So they really do fully know. Yeah, and I think, I don't know if there's one of, you know, we've talked about the do you not know phrases, ten of them in this, I, I'm not sure if there's one connected here with this, I think there is one in this chapter. Paul's taught them, and that's one of the frustrations I think that he has. He says, I've taught you the right things, I've taught you about the resurrection. So now he's going it through it all again and laying it all out for us. Um, you know, I think sometimes Paul, you know, Paul says, you know, God works all things for the good. We have this wonderful teaching about the resurrection because these people were being stupid and were abandoning it. So Paul's straightening them out and he has to write it all out in this epistle so we have it now. <laughs> so in a sense, here's something that was really bad going on that they should have been ashamed of, but we benefit from it. Mm -hmm. So I think the whole book is that way. <laughs> There's a lot of things that we can learn because of their errors. Okay, so in the previous verses, you know, Paul's brought this whole issue to light. Um, and he's explicitly described it so that they really do not have an excuse. But they should be able to see what they were doing and how they should be ashamed of themselves. Um, and we, we do see this um, idea of um, shaming them because he does become very sarcastic here. Verse 4 might have been sarcastic. Verse 5 definitely is. Um, 
Is there not among you one wise man who can make the decision? Don't you have anybody <laughs> who can make these simple decisions? Are you all that foolish? Um, you know, thinking back to the first five chapters, <coughs> over and over again, he talks about the wisdom of man versus the wisdom of God. How arrogant they were, because they thought they were wiser than God. Let's look at chapter 3. Someone like to read verse 18 for us. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in their things, let him become a fool that he may become wise. Okay. He's writing this because they thought they were wise. Um, and then chapter 4. Uh, someone like to read verse 10. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we are misrepute. Uh -huh. they, th they, thought, they thought they were wise. They thought, but you were prudent. That's what you say you are. You say you know more than I do. You're wiser than I am. And now he's saying, okay, all you wise guys, where are you? Stand up and make these judgments. Um, this is rather sarcastic. <laughs> um, but it's not just, you know, it's, it's not just that these... They don't recognize that anybody can make the decision. What, what makes it even worse is they're taking it public. They're going to the public courts with their disputes. Um, so this is shameful behavior. They're taking it to the public court. They're fighting with each other. And it's all over the front page of the newspaper. Um, horrible witness. Let's look at uh, Colossians. Chapter 4 and verse 5. Someone would like to read that for us. Colossians chapter 4, verse 5. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Okay, so here's, um, you know, be wise how you act toward outsiders, outside in the world. Specifically here, he's talking about our interaction with people as an opportunity to teach and maybe to witness to them. But uh, it also applies to um, just the general impression of Christians in the church. I mean, they already are blasting Christians when we do things biblically and correctly. Mm -hmm. But when we're foolish and do stupid things, it just makes it worse. It's like they're waiting for it. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're, waiting. they're waiting to pounce. Um, Let's look at some places where we talk about bringing shame to Christ and bringing shame to the church. Let's look at Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. And would someone like to read verses 22 through 24? dishonor God. This, and he's talking about the hypocrisy here. You say you have these standards, but do you 
keep them yourselves out in public. You dishonor God. And then he quotes from uh, Isaiah uh, about how they, um, how God's name is blasphemed because of you. I'm talking specifically to the Jews here. Let's go back to Nehemiah. Should be able to turn there real quick since we spent so much time. <laughs> Nehemiah. If I can find it myself. Between Ezra and Esther. Nehemiah chapter 5. Someone like to read verses 8 and 9 for us. Okay, so this is where the, the rich were basically um, taking their fellow Jews as indentured servants to pay off loans and then selling that servitude to Gentiles. And Nehemiah has enough funding and wealth that he's saying, we've been buying them back and you're still selling them. Uh, if you remember that. Um, but again, you get to the end of it, and it's the reproach of the nations. The Gentiles see what's going on. The Jews are just abusing each other. And the Gentiles are making money off of it. So, you know, God is being reproached because of that. So, instead of being a bad witness to the world, we should be lights to the world. We should reflect God's goodness. And let's look at one passage in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 and some of the verses 14 through 16. Do all things without rumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of God, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Okay. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. They were having disputes. And he says, don't have disputes. And... The result of that in verse 15, you know, we show ourselves to be blameless and innocent in the midst of a crooked generation. They see what we're doing. We should appear as lights to the world um, and hold fast the word of God. And Paul says, uh, if you guys can't do that, then I've wasted my time. I've run in vain as, as, as their teacher. So, taking the disputes to a public court uh, is, is bad enough, but this really is a consequence of a deeper problem. 
And we'll see that in verses 7 and 8, back in 1 Corinthians 6. So what's this deeper problem? It says, actually, then it's already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud, and that your brethren. So this whole situation is a defeat. It's, um, it's, a, it's a failure on their part. And we have this word for defeat in uh, Romans chapter 11. So let's see what he means by a defeat. Romans 11, and someone like to read verse 12 for us. Twelve. He's talking about the Jews and their, and their rejection of Christ. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Okay, so their failure is the rejection of their Messiah. Um, I mean, that's a, that's a horrible failure. The promises of God, the promises of the kingdom, of glory, of regeneration, all those things that you see in the prophets. They rejected that. I mean, it's like, duh. <laughs> you know, so God took the message to us, and we can, we, you know, we benefit from that. Their failure is our blessing. So we gain the, we gain the spiritual blessings that they failed to, uh, to, uh, to apprehend, to take hold of. So this word defeat or failure here, um, the commentaries actually said that, you know, if you take a case to law and you lose it, this is the word that's used here. You've, you've failed in court, or you've been defeated in court, you've lost your case. So Paul is saying, you've already lost your case before you even go to court, because you are taking it to court. You failed long before you get to the part of looking for a judgment. You know, even if you take it within the church, maybe you want to take it to the elders. He says, you've already lost because you have this dispute. You should not even have this dispute. Um, that's a spiritual failure here. And so we have a couple of rhetorical questions. He says, why not rather be wronged? And the word wronged means to be, to be injured, not necessarily physical. It might be um, monetary injury, like a business deal. Um, or to suffer injustice. Don't you hate injustice? I hate it. I, I mean, I was a couple weeks ago saw watching a football game where it's like the referees made a horrible call, and it wasn't one of my teams either. It was, the, it was, the, and it was like, it was so unjust. You know, I just, we don't, we hate injustice, whether it's against us or against somebody else. We hate to see it. Um, Paul says it's better to suffer injustice than to take the offending brother to court. This is the classic example of turning the other cheek. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 5. That's our turn the other cheek passage. And it includes something very specific 
that applies here. Matthew chapter 5, would someone like to read verses 39 and 40? And 40, please. For if anyone will sue you and take your gratuity, let him have your cloak as well. Okay, verse 40, someone's suing you. They're taking you to court. And he says, they want your shirt. And Jesus says, give them your shirt and your coat. Give them everything they're asking for. It may be totally unjust, but don't fight it. This is, this is not easy. <laughs> um, how can we do that? You know, when you want to see justice done, right? To begin with. You know, whether it's watching someone else being treated unjustly. Well, God says he'll take care of it. Let's look at Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Only like we read verses 17 through 19. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. 19? 19 yes, please. Because never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Okay. God says, I will repay. God hates injustice more than we do. And so that's why you can say, don't pay back evil for evil. He says, I'm going to take care of it. Yeah. They will get what they deserve. Like right now with the Israelites. Yes. What's happening to them. Yes. Or God will choose to extend his grace to them as he did to us, and they will be saved. So that's the other alternative. Either God will give them the justice that they deserve, or he will pour out his grace upon them, as God did to us. Um, I want to read one proverb here. <clears throat> proverb chapter 20. Verse 22. Proverbs 20.22 says simply, Do not say I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord, and he will save you. That's from Proverbs. So God says, I'll take care of the offender. Well, what about you? You're the victim. I've suffered. <laughs> what do I get out of this deal? It's not fair. It's not fair. Yes, I've been injured. I've suffered injury. Somehow, maybe monetarily, maybe pride, whatever. I've suffered injury. Well, let's look at 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 This is about a, a slave with an unreasonable master. 1 Peter chapter 2, someone like to read verses 19 and 20. Sin and are beaten for it, you endure. But if when you 
but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing for the Son of God. Okay. You're suffering unjustly. Okay, so here's our word. The uh, New American Standard says, This finds favor. Uh, at the beginning of 19 and at the end of 20, this finds favor with God. God will bless you. He says, if you're, if you're getting treated poorly because you deserve it, that doesn't, God doesn't give you any blessing for that because that's, you deserve it. But if it's unjust treatment, God will bless you for, for that. Yes. Staying, staying in 1 Peter. Well, that's the illustration in this chapter. First Peter, um, First Peter chapter three. Would someone like to read verse nine for us? Okay. So this is actually uh, he's some yeah. I should have read verses 8 and 9. <coughs> to sum up, let all be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. He's talking to believers. This is a summary. Don't return evil for evil. If someone does evil to you, don't do it back. And the result is you will inherit a blessing. God will bless you. Um, so, you know, why not rather be wronged is what the first thing that uh, Paul asked them in 1 Corinthians 6. The second thing he says, why not rather be defrauded? And to defraud means to keep back something that is owed. You go and you do work for someone and they refuse to pay you for, for it. Um, again, God will take care of this. Let's look at James chapter that's basically the subject of this, this whole section in James. James chapter 5. Someone like to read verse 4. Only wages of the labor is too long in the field, which you get back by thought, by trying out against them, and the prize and the harvester, and reach the ears of the Lord of hosts. Okay. He's talking to the wealthy. The laborers have been in your field, and you've withheld their wages. This is specifically prohibited in the law. We don't need to look back at that. But that's what he's doing. This is defrauding them. Will God take care of that? Well, yes, he does. We can see that in verses 1 through 3 here. Would someone like to read verses 1 through 3? James 5, yes, James chapter 5, same context. Come now, you rich. So yep. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. And the corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Okay, that doesn't sound very good, does it? Weep and howl and your, your wealth and your riches are going to rot away. And Why? Well, verse 4, because you've defrauded your laborers. God will judge. He takes care of it. Um, 
And he strengthens that warning in verses uh, 8 and 9 where he says, You too be patient, strengthening your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. <laughs> so your judgment is coming, and it's, the judge is right at the door. So um, we see uh, back in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul is basically he's condemning the victims. You've been wronged. And you're taking it to court. You are wrong in that. So he's condemning the victims of this injustice because they're responding incorrectly to the injustice. You think, well, gee, they've already been hurt. <laughs> Is God just pouring more on or through Paul? Um, so, you know, that's, but that's, they're doing wrong. They're responding incorrectly. Yes, they've been hurt by their fellow believers, but God says that's not how you're supposed to respond. So, well, we need to stop there. Again, partway through a, a section. Um, yeah. Marie, would you like to close in prayer for us? I would love okay. to. Father, we thank you so much for any chance that we get to open your word and to learn. Thank you for this study. Lord, help us to remember these things. And oh, we just thank you, Father, for your word for the hour to come that you give Robert as he presents your word to us also, Father. May we be attentive and, and hear what you have to say. In Jesus' name, amen.